Uh, Father, this weekend we as a nation celebrate our Declaration of Independence. Uh, We celebrate, Father, a, a nation that was created and built upon great words and great principles. Uh, We believe that all men and women and children are created equal. We fought a war against ourselves uh, just to uphold that principle. And yet, Father, too, we acknowledge that all along the way we've really fallen far short of fully living that out even still to this day. But God, we are thankful that we live in a nation with laws and live in a place with freedoms that let us worship, let us study the Bible, let us be reminded of truth so that we can correct error. And Father, we would pray for our nation at this time. We would ask God for healing. We would ask to grow as a people. Uh, We would ask to figure out as a church how to better love each other and our neighbor. We truly need the independence, God, that only you, only Jesus, only the Holy Spirit can give. And Father, at this time, as we open the scriptures and look at them and study them, we would ask you to teach us and change us because of the truth that they contain. We pray, Father, that uh, we would honor you now in our worship by just giving our hearts and our minds to you to listen to what you have to say to us. These things we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, um, good morning to those of you who are here and good morning to those of you who are at home and watching with us. It's good to worship together. This morning, uh, we're going to finish our study of the book of Revelation, which we've been in now for quite some time. And it's a very significant thing that we've just done together as a church Anytime you come to the end of a long conversation or anytime you come to the close of a significant letter that somebody took the time to read you or anytime you come to the last page of a book, you come to the last words and the last words are always important words. Uh, How many of you here this morning are married? How many of you have had a good argument with your spouse before? Yeah, some of you. All of you, if you're being truthful. Um, And in that argument, how many of you said, honey, I want you to have the last word? How many have said that? Yeah, none of us, because we all want to have the last word. The last word matters. There's a book written by Jonathan Green. It's called Famous Last Words. Some of it is actually pretty funny to read. There uh, was an individual, a union general, General Sedgwick. Maybe you know his famous last words. He stood on a mound, actually, at a battle, and he said, they couldn't hit an elephant from this distance. And those were his last words. (laughs) People who speak in public learn real soon that uh, last words are words that very often people actually remember. And so this morning we come not just to the final chapter of this book of Revelation, but to the final words of Scripture itself. Uh, Imagine. God has been guiding, directing, inspiring, protecting his word as it's been revealed now for almost 2,000 years. And now in Revelation chapter 22, it all comes down to the final book and the final chapter and the final words. So let's read God's final words to us in this book we call the Bible. 
This is Revelation 22, starting at verse 7. We read these words. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book, worship God. And then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. Let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book, of which we've seen many. Uh, He who testifies to these things I'm sorry. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Those are the words of God. What Jesus says several times in this text we just read is, I am coming soon. I'll be back. And you know, there are over 300 references to the return of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And we've seen in our study of this book that there are some things that are only mentioned perhaps one time in Scripture and a whole doctrine gets built around them. Things like the millennium, for example. You've got to be cautious with things that are not mentioned often in Scripture. We've learned that it's dangerous to formulate doctrines around something that is mentioned just one time in Scripture. Generally, something that's important enough to be a pillar, to be uh, central to our faith, a foundational truth, if you will, it's written about many times and in different places. And the return of Jesus is just such a teaching. We're told that the return of Jesus will be sudden. The Apostle Paul says it'll be like a thief in the night. It will be obvious, we're taught. Images associated with this are the blast of a trumpet, something everybody everywhere will hear. We're told that there will be an opening of the skies so that everyone everywhere will see. 
We're told that Jesus, when he comes, will be riding on a white horse and, and his followers, his children, the church will ride right behind him. In other words, nobody is going to miss this event. It can't happen and somebody is unaware. We are told too in the Bible that when Jesus returns, it will be final. Jesus said himself, all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And then when he comes, it will be over. Life as we know it will be done. Uh, the Apostle Peter says this, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Uh, so for all who know God and all who trust in Jesus and all who are led by the Holy Spirit, this life will be replaced by something actually far better than we can even imagine. And we've seen that and pictures of that and visions of that. Peter says that, uh, he says, but in keeping with his promise, Jesus' promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, he calls it. It's a great picture, the home of of righteousness. Now, why do we suppose Jesus would choose to leave us with this central message, the last words of the book uh, we call the Bible? Why would Jesus say, yes, that's an emphatic, yes, absolutely, I am coming soon? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think it's because of the importance of hope. Uh, hope is a theme that's run through this book. It didn't just get introduced in the last chapter. Uh, hope is, is something that kind of underlines everything that we've been studying. God knows that we need hope to live. God knows we need hope to face tomorrow. It's a strange thing about human beings. We can survive almost anything. Uh, some people in our church have survived staggering personal and relational losses. Others have faced crippling illness or are battling illness right now. Others have faced um, financial setbacks. Some endure pain. We have folks in our congregation that endure significant amounts of pain every day, every minute. Human beings are capable of enduring great hardship and great pain, but there's one thing we really cannot endure, and that is life, life without hope. Once hope dries up, we're finished. And so Jesus wants to fuel our hope. And he says, yes, emphatically, I am coming back soon. And that simple phrase gives everybody who follows him a great deal of hope. Rock solid hope, certain hope, hope that we will uh, see Jesus and hope that he will see us right through to the end. And to ensure that our hope stays strong, Jesus has given us some things to, to strengthen and to maintain our hope. And these are things that again and again come up in the book of Revelation that we've been studying. One of those things is just the church. Uh, in this book, we've seen Jesus' love and Jesus' concern for his people, for the church. He wants the church to grow. He wants the church to be pure. He wants the church to remain faithful. He wants the church to overcome. He wants the church to persevere, even in the face of persecution and opposition. The church, as we've seen in this book, is Jesus' community. It's his kingdom. It's his body. It's his people. It's his family. It's also, amazingly, his witness. His witness here on earth. 
while he's in heaven. The church is the place that stewards this thing of the gospel, the good news, the message about who Jesus is and why he came and what he did and what happened after he gave up his life. The church shares that news with a watching world. And that's the interesting thing. There can be at times a lot of animosity pointed toward the church, which is just another way of recognizing that people pay attention to the church. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, but we are Jesus' witness. That's our primary mission. Go and make disciples, said Jesus. It's the church also, as we follow Jesus, as we study his word, as we seek to live it out, it's the church that for 2,000 plus years, when it's working right, it's the church that has been the primary guardian of things like the sanctity of marriage. Uh, It's the church that's been the primary place where the rich are commanded to love and to care for the poor. Where we are told to love our neighbor as we do ourselves. It's the church uh, where the privileged are commanded to care about and for the the less privileged. It's the church where we are reminded that we must love even, even our enemies. Tell me, where else does that happen? Well, I would submit nowhere else. Not really. The church is the place where servanthood is honored above power in a power-hungry world. That's not the value of the church. The church is the community of hope. We preach hope. We teach hope. We live and breathe the hope that Jesus gives us. That's the church. Then that's the church now. And the church is you and me. (laughs) It's us. And that's why John is so passionate that the church work right. One misconception that I really hope we've cleared up about this book is the idea or the notion that Revelation is just a book of predictions about the future, something that's going to come off in the distant future and not really a book for Christians of all ages. I hope we've dispelled that notion. We've said over and over and over that is not correct. John's whole reason for writing this book as God inspired him is because he loved the church. He was a real pastor who wanted to minister to real churches. And we read about seven of them in the early chapters of this book there in the first century. This book was for them as much as it is for us today. John was passionately concerned for their spiritual health. And his images and his visions teach the importance and the place of the church. Remember the image of the the seven lampstands representing those churches. Well, the church is the light of the world. It gives light in a dark world. Remember the image of the church as a mighty army following Jesus. When he returns, the church will overcome. In fact, the truth is the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church will be victorious over the gates of hell. Remember the image of the church, this huge worshiping community, all gathered, all singing the praises of God. Every nation, tribe, language will gather to worship Jesus. That's the church. We'll be as one nation, one community, one body of Jesus. If this world is ever, ever, ever going to know real oneness, if racial and ethnic differences are ever to be overcome, It will be in the church and because of the message and the hope of the church. The church is the human vehicle through which the world finds hope, friends. And that is because of Jesus. That's who we hope in. 
If you remember back in the beginning of this book, the first couple of chapters, chapter two and three, Jesus speaks to uh, the churches and he, he encourages the churches and he corrects the churches. Churches have always needed both encouragement and correction. And then Jesus makes promises to them, those early believers. He says, if you overcome... If you overcome, you'll eat from the tree of life. That's one of his promises. He says, if you overcome, you'll be given a white stone with a name on it that only you and God know. In other words, you'll be given an intimacy of relationship with God, God Almighty. That's mind boggling. He says, if you overcome, you will sit next to Jesus on the throne. I'm not sure how millions of us would do that. I I think what that probably means is we'll be right there with Jesus, with the Father, with the Holy Spirit in the throne room, and it'll be incredibly glorious. He says, if you overcome, you will even be pillars in his temple. That that is right uh, smack dab in the middle of the temple, which is the picture we get later on of of the holy city, which is the people of God, and God is right in the midst of them. But these are incredible promises, promises of fulfillment, promises of satisfaction, promises of purpose, promises of deliverance, promises that if you understand them, give you hope, tons and tons of hope. Those promises, there are promises because we are a part of the church. I hope that because we've uh, studied the book of Revelation together, you have a a deeper appreciation for and devotion to this thing called the church. And because of that, I hope you have a greater hope. I hope you have that hope. Let me mention a second thing that we've seen in the book that strengthens, that is meant to strengthen and maintain our hope. And that's just when we gather as a church to worship. Um, a very important thing that the church does as a regular rhythm in any given week. We gather to worship. And when we worship in spirit and in truth, guess what we do? Well, we grow hope. Now, ironically, as we have studied much of this book, we really haven't been able to gather. And the irony in that is pretty uh, significant. And truthfully, it's been a, a difficult season for churches for people who follow Jesus, uh, simply because of this phenomenon of the virus and not being able to gather and social distancing and masks. You know how silly you look? I'm not saying there's not a reason to be wearing those masks. I'm just saying you look silly. And you could say back, I look silly too with or without one. I get it, but, but it's just so weird to not be able to gather as a whole group and embrace and sing and praise for people who follow Jesus. This has been a stretch here at Deer Creek Church. We've been committed to cooperating with our government leaders during this coronavirus outbreak, and we're going to continue down that path, but not without paying a price. Don't, don't think without paying a price. The biggest price we pay is not money lost or attendance figures. You know, our attendance has really sucked lately. It's, it's the lowest it's ever been. It's lower than even the first day that this church ever met. <laughs> but that's not really a very big price to pay. Uh, the biggest price that we pay is also not even in ministry opportunity lost, I would say. The biggest price we pay is it's the community that we have sacrificed. It's the loss of hope that comes with sacrificing community. 
Some of you uh, have emailed me and some have talked to me on the phone and others I've actually talked face to face with uh, about this who are just battling discouragement, loneliness, depression for all kinds of difficult reasons. And all these things are closely related to maintaining and to growing hope. You see, when you can't be together as a church, as a follower of Jesus, when you can't gather with others and see each other face to face and hang out and laugh when laughing needs to happen or cry when crying needs to happen or pray or sing or worship, when you can't do those things together with others, you can start to lose hope. The images of the church in this book that we've been studying, I can tell you, they have nothing to do with social distancing. Nothing whatsoever. They have nothing to do with online services. I get a kick when we first started into this period of time and we, every church had to figure out a way real fast to broadcast its services so that people could watch them. And there were some churches out there just, you know, gaga over the idea that this is the new church, you know, church online. Guess what, friends? Church online just sucks. It's better than nothing to be able to watch as others get. It's, it's better than, but sitting at home in your family room, watching a TV, that ain't the church gathered. Never will be. Uh, you just lose something when you can't be together with others. You see, the images that we have of the church in this book is, is the church gathered, it's up close, it's together, it's crying out to God, it's singing his praises, it's confessing and declaring his praises, it's praying for justice to come where there's injustice, it's a confessing of truth together from the 24 elders that we encountered early on to the saints who are under the altar who have been martyred. They all cry out together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You are worthy and you are holy and they can't yell it loud enough. And that's not us here this morning, is it? I mean, not really. This is an odd thing. But you see, in worship, when you're doing that gathered together with others, shoulder to shoulder, you know what happens? Declaring truth and singing praise. Hope grows. Hope. Hope that justice will be done someday because it's certainly not done today, not perfectly. Hope that wrongs will be made right. Hope that evil will be punished and stopped once and for all. Hope that Jesus will be given the glory that only Jesus deserves. And the church loves declaring his glory to the nations. Now, in worship, What do we do? Well, we remember and we learn that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the one promised, the King who will reign forever. Jesus is also the Lamb who was slain. Jesus is the bright morning star. That picture right there uh, in and of itself is all about hope. A dark night ends when the bright morning star comes. You see, Jesus is the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. Nobody but Jesus. Jesus sits on the throne of God Almighty. Jesus has a name and it's faithful and true. Every promise Jesus gives us is 
Guaranteed, friends, guaranteed. Jesus judges both the living and the dead. Jesus is the only one worthy to take the scroll we saw and open the seals and execute the plan of God. And these are the things we learn together when we worship. And these are the things we celebrate together when we worship. I got to tell you, I I want more and more in my worship to see God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and to understand him the way he is revealed in his majesty and power and glory and mercy and wisdom in this book that we've been studying. I can't wait until we once again can gather together safely as a whole church family and worship. Because the worship of Almighty God grows our understanding of who God is, and that is what grows our hope. It's that simple. There's this wonderful scene in uh, Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. Most of you, I bet, have probably read that or are familiar with it. There's one, uh, she's a little girl when she's first introduced to the story. She ages, and she leaves Narnia. She comes back later when she's older. Her name is Lucy. And uh, there's been this period of time that has elapsed since she first saw Aslan. Aslan is Jesus in this land of Narnia. And Jesus there, Aslan, is a large lion. And she sees him. She hasn't seen him for some time. She sees him and she says, Aslan, you are bigger. (laughs) And he says, that's because you are older, little one. And she says, not because you're bigger. And Aslan says, I am not. But each time you grow, you will find me bigger. And that's a great line. That's a great line. You see, I hope because of this series and the time that we spent plowing through this book, I hope that we have grown. We've gotten a little older, spiritually speaking, right? And therefore, Aslan, therefore, Jesus is bigger. Our God is bigger than before we entered into this study. That's what worship does. Worship is that thing that we do on a weekly rhythm that that keeps enlarging our understanding of who God is. And when we do that, our hope gets bigger. Uh, Something else that Jesus has given us to strengthen and to maintain hope, and this will sound kind of odd at first, but we've highlighted this over and over and over as we've studied. Uh, It's just the assurance that God's judgment is coming. Uh, I know that sounds odd, but uh, you can't read this book, the book of Revelation, without having the reality of God's coming judgment right here in your face over and over and over. For a lot of people, people who suffer injustice and people who are treated unfairly or cruelly, people who are trusting in Jesus, mind you, the coming of God's judgment is a source of real comfort. It means God is going to do something about all of the brokenness in this world. He's the one who can actually do something about it. Ironically, for those of us who live mostly uh, in such great comfort in this nation that we inhabit, sometimes we don't like thinking a whole lot about coming judgment, God's judgment. Just seems like it's going to disturb the whole apple cart, you know. Um, Well, in this book, John just keeps coming at you with the reality of the judgment that is to come. Remember the vision of the seven seals? 
And then it was the seven trumpets. And then it was the seven plagues. And then it was the seven bowls. And then we get to the great white throne judgment. It's judgment upon judgment upon judgment upon judgment pictured over and over and over again. John is reminding us, Jesus is reminding us through John that judgment is coming. Yes, I am coming soon. And when he comes, he brings judgment. Even here at the conclusion of this book, uh, the image in Revelation twenty two fifteen. here's the image. It says outside, it's talking about outside the city, the city which is the people of God. It says outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, those who are trying to gain and acquire and control power from demonic sources. That's what the practice of magical arts is. Those who practice magical arts, the sexually immoral, the those who, who don't understand the purpose and the place of sex and marriage and things like that. The murderers, it says, those that don't regard human life as significant and they would take a life in the beat of an eyelash. The murderers, the idolaters, those who choose to worship other gods than the one true and living God. And it says, everyone who loves and practices falsehood, that group of people are actually outside the city. In the verse just before that, John says that blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates and into the city. Blessed are those who are among the people of Jesus. John says there are those inside the city gates who have one destiny and there are those outside the city gates who have quite Another One has divine blessing, the other has divine punishment, divine judgment, divine wrath. And God wants us to remember no one, no one will evade or escape God's coming judgment. That is the sober truth about this world that we inhabit. No one will evade or escape God's coming judgment judgment. That message runs through every chapter of this book. You are either saved from judgment by the blood of the lamb by Jesus, or you are punished in judgment by the wrath of the lamb, the one who will come to judge. And so because I follow the lamb, I can have the certain hope of a better day. A better day is coming. A better me is coming. A better world is is coming. A better time is coming. That gives me hope. And I can share that hope in Jesus with others who follow him. And I can be comforted. As I do these things, my hope grows. My hope blossoms. My hope is my anchor, you see. Uh, I want to mention one last thing that Jesus has given us to strengthen and to maintain our hope. Maybe this is an obvious one, but it's, uh, it's an important one. And that is simply the word of God. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book, he says. Those are Jesus' words. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Jesus stresses the importance of my listening to and obeying the word of God. God's word is perhaps the most helpful tool we have to strengthen and maintain our hope. 
Yes, we have the church. Very important. Very much a blessing to us. We have worship. We know that justice is coming. But how do we know these things? Well, we have God's word. His infallible, authoritative, inerrant, inspired word. How do we change and correct our thinking? How do we correct our behavior? How do we identify sin in us and in our world? How do we get to know God, actually get to know him better? How do we forgive and learn to love our enemies? How do we learn to care about people and things that we are supposed to care about? The answer to all these questions is by studying and listening and learning by getting God's word into our hearts and our minds. It's the only answer I know to those questions. The apostle Paul tells us, he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. You know, this world is always pressing and pushing down on us to get us to conform to the way it thinks and the way it behaves. And if you won't do that, you're intolerant, you understand. The apostle Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. And that's what we need to know day in, day out. And so I read scripture, I memorize scripture, I think about scripture, I linger over scripture. That's why the Bible has in fact been given to us so that we can get to know God, so that we could know the mind of God and the will of God, and then by the power of God, actually do it. But you know, some folks today, and this is usually folks that are aging, that are my age, I think, is my general observation. Uh, some folks look at the world and they think the world is literally falling apart and, and that there's terrible, you know, amounts of sin in the world. And the sin today is worse than the sin was once upon a time, you know, so on and so forth. And uh, they're absolutely right. There's plenty of sin in the world. But I would just, you know, make the observation there's always been plenty of sin in the world. Um, we just happen to have more sinful, foolish uh, thinking uh, behavior today because we have more sinful, foolish thinking sinners in the world today. There's more of us than there ever have been before on this planet. And uh, I don't necessarily think the world is more sinful or the world is worse. The world's always awful. Always. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Sadly, so sad. I mean, the world is always awful. Things are always broken. There's always one nation oppressing another nation, one tribe oppressing another tribe, one group of people hating on another group. Has there ever been a time when that wasn't happening? And the answer is no. And it's going to continue to happen until Jesus himself does something about it. Now, we get to be a light to the world, living out of the truth of who Jesus is, having his spirit at work in us and learning what it means to love our neighbor and love our enemy. And as we do that, some will want to follow Jesus with us. And we've got to do better at that for sure. But... Uh, there is this big collective pool of sin in the world, always has been. 
But at the same time, because of those who love Jesus, because of those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, because of God's word, we can be the light of the world. Go figure. Imagine. I know. I know. It's hard for me to imagine how you could be the light of the world. Now, and you're thinking, yeah, well, you sure are. I mean, yeah, yeah, I get it. But I, I mean, imagine this. We can be a light to a dark world just by following Jesus honestly. And when we don't admit it, right, confess it, be forgiven, and start following him again. That's the dynamic of the Christian life. We do this as individual Christians who follow Jesus, and we are supposed to do this collectively together as a church. And when we do that, we are light in a dark world, truth in this world of falsehood, wisdom in a world of incredible foolishness. But we do all of this with humility. Because we know when we see the brokenness in us and we know the deliverance that we have in Jesus. Um, John says this, he says, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. What is written in it? Because the time is near. If you take God's word to heart, guarantee you, you'll be a hopeful person. I don't care what your circumstances are. They may be terribly difficult, but you'll be a hopeful person because you know God. You know who's in charge. You know what's going on and who's going to win. And you know what's coming. And that's Jesus. He's coming soon. And knowing these things, you will be a source of hope to others. And that is our mission, friends, individually and together, offering what we know, pointing to the hope we have, that's Jesus, so that others can have that same hope with us. The last words of this book, friends, are words of incredible hope. Jesus says, absolutely, absolutely, I am coming soon. And when he returns, we, uh, we mentioned this, we saw this actually happen many times in the course of uh, the events of judgment that are going to be poured out on the world. Jesus is going to conquer evil with no effort at all. Just with a word that he speaks, Jesus is going to put a final end to evil, a final end to oppression. A final end to hatred and disease and injustice and foolish, destructive lies and poverty and wounded hearts and everything that makes human beings less than they're supposed to be. His followers will look like him. We have this one great hope, friends, and it's, it's not our strength or our family, our job, our cleverness, our intelligence or our politics. It is Jesus. Jesus is our hope. He is it. And he will be coming soon. And those are the last best words of scripture. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of the promise that Jesus makes that he is coming soon. And we with Christians everywhere hold on to and believe in that promise. Jesus, come quickly. 
We pray, Father, you would help us to live in faith and trust, live in hope that allows us, God, to believe in and to obey your word so that you can use us if you tarry, if you don't come back today, you can use us individually and as a church to be a light to the world, a source of hope. And we pray, God, in this time, in our country, in our place where we live, you would use these times uh, to, to create, to cause a stirring in hearts that men and women and children of all places everywhere would come to faith in you. Come to believe in you, Jesus. Come to believe that you're the one who can heal and mend and transform the brokenness, the enmity, the lack of humility, the hate that can be in us. You can change that, Father. You have died to make that happen, Jesus. Thank you for the message of this book. Thank you for this time of worship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.